0: the book of Proverbs 1 through 7, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Jesus said the greatest man who ever lived was John the Baptist. But we learn in the Old Testament that the wisest man who ever lived was Solomon. And as we lay the background, sort of an introduction to the book of Hebrews, I do want to study a little bit about his life and have you turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3. As David is in chapter 2 giving Solomon really his final words of instruction as a father would on his deathbed to his son who would become his heir to take care of some unfinished business. If you're interested in that, read chapter 2. Chapter 3, we're told that Solomon in his young Days, in verse 3, loved the Lord. He walked in the statutes of his father David, except he did sacrifice and burn incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now make note of verse 5, because it's going to happen twice. It says, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask, what do you want? This hasn't been repeated as far as I can think of in human history where God comes down. What do you want? I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And Solomon said, you know, Lord, you've showed great kindness to my father, and now you've given him a son to sit on his throne, and I'm grateful for that. But in verse 7, he says, but I am a little child, I don't know how to go out, and I don't know how to come in. He feels an inadequacy for the position to fill the shoes of the greatest king Israel ever had, Solomon was very aware of, and he says, I need help. So what I ask for is that um, you give your servant, verse 9, an understanding heart to judge your people that I might discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Simple prayer. And the prayer actually pleased the Lord, verse 10. And um, then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and you haven't asked for a long life for yourself, you haven't asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you nor shall any like after you arise. And I will also give you what you have not asked for, riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all of your days. Now the immensity of what the Lord said here is uh, huge because Taking this literally, and I do, and as we study about the kingdom of Solomon, and that's the reason we're going through these, briefly skipping these chapters, is that there has never been a person on this planet that has ever uh, been wiser than Solomon except our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can go ahead and fill in the blank from Hawkins, who's out there right now, and Einstein, or Benjamin Franklin, or... I just fill it in, and there is no one outside of Christ who has had more wisdom, discernment, insight than this man here. As we take it a step farther, just his kingdom, um, let's go to chapter 4, and let me draw your attention. Um, um, 20 and 21, um, <clears throat> The land that uh, he oversaw. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sands of the sea. Eating and drinking and rejoicing. And Solomon's reign was over all the kingdoms from the river. uh, To the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. Now the river would be Euphrates. And uh, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So he ruled over this vast empire. And um, we'll get into the tribute here in just a little bit. Um, His wisdom, verse uh, 29, picking up verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding. It says, largeness of heart like the sands of the sea. And thus Solomon's wisdom excelled and uh, excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and of uh, Egypt and named some of the wisest people of that generation in verse 31 and then he wrote 3,000 proverbs well there's 31 proverbs here and when you add them up there's about 800 but there's evidently 3,000 many that we don't have record of In um, we just got done doing the Psalms we learned that in there, Solomon wrote one of the songs. Well, here, we're told <laughs> he wrote 1,005 songs. Ask any musician, and they'll tell you that's quite a feat. And, um, and then he also wrote books on botany and science. And verse 33, he spoke of trees and cedars of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals and of birds, creeping things, of fish, and men of all the nations from all the kingdoms of the earth who heard of his wisdom, came to hear of the wisdom of Solomon. Let's skip over to chapter six, verse one. David's heart's desire was <clears throat> to build a temple for the Lord. He felt convicted. He had a nice house of cedar. He says, "Not right, Lord. I live in this nice house of cedar, and you dwell in this wilderness tabernacle, and I want to build you a house." And Nathan said, just, just go for it, David. Lord bless you. And uh, Nathan was going home that night, and the Lord tapped him on the shoulder and says, you didn't ask me about that one, Nathan. Go back and tell David he can't build a house. He's got too much blood on his hands. And so he goes back to David, and he says, David, I spoke out of turn. I got good news, and I got bad news. What do you want first? <laughs> and he said, um, the bad news is you can't build a temple. You have too much blood on your hands. But here's the good news. I'm going to make you a house instead. And from your lineage, there will always be somebody who will sit on the throne. And what David understood by saying this, that the Messiah of Israel himself was going to come through David. And this is the first time David is hearing about it. That's why David is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of, say it, David. How come nobody said it? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of? That's much better. Are you guys still practicing from the psalm we read this morning, or what? So David can't build the temple, but now what he did is lay aside all this treasure and wealth for his son Solomon. So that when Solomon would come, he would have the resources to um, build what we call the first temple, Solomon's temple. So in chapter 6, we're just going to read one verse. It came to pass in the four hundredth and eightieth year, after the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon, Solomon's been reigning for four years, um, that he began to build the house of the Lord. 480 years it was in that wilderness tabernacle, carried around from place to place. And now, 480 years later, four years into the reign of Solomon, a seven-year building project is about to take place. It took seven years for this temple to be built. Solomon built his own house. That took 13 years for him to build the house. If we go to chapter 8 and verse 10 and 11, we have the dedication of this temple. After seven years, we're fast-forwarding now seven years. And um, it's interesting because in verse 9, we have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. A lot of speculation today that the the Ark has been found. Some people claim they know where it is underneath the Temple Mount in uh, Jerusalem. But um, in verse 9 of chapter 8 it says uh, concerning the Ark of the Covenant there was nothing in the Ark except two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Well, what's missing is Aaron's rod that budded and remember a pot of manna was also put in there. What happened to him? We don't know. But the tablets of stone were still there. Now, as they put the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies, the temple would have, would have been divided into two chambers. The showbread, um, the uh, altar of incense would have been in the holy place. Then there would have been a huge veil. And then on the other side would have been the Holy of Holies. When it was, verse 10, it came to pass, when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the, house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and now God's presence was manifested we call it the Shekinah glory and uh, we have God literally dwelling amongst his people the high priest could go back to that room once a year and that was on the day of atonement but uh, it, it, it's sending a, a message, a very simple one, that you just won't, don't nonchalantly go into the presence of God. First time it happened to Moses, it said, get down on your knees, Moses, take off those shoes. You're walking on holy ground. So the holiness of, of God, man cannot dwell in his presence without immediately dying, unless, unless provision and atonement for sin is made. So here we have the dedication of the temple. The Lord appears now in chapter nine. Um, take it, uh, turn page to chapter nine. We have the reiterating of David's covenant and the Lord now is going to appear to Solomon a second time. Now this is important because the the fact that The Lord's going to make an issue, if you were here on Wednesday, I made an issue of the significance of the Lord appearing to Solomon a second time. Because when he sinned and began to worship other gods because of his many wives, he says, Look, I appeared to you two times, and you still, after that experience, turned and worshipped these other gods. But he wants to now pass down to Solomon the promise that he made to David. So let's just read a couple of verses, 1 through 9, in chapter 9. It came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said, I have heard your prayer, your supplication, that you have made before me. I have sanctified this house, which you have built, to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me, as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then... I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandment and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the people. And we've heard the term, the wandering Jews, and that's exactly what happened and exactly what's going to happen. All right, let's look at a little bit of Solomon's wealth. Um, Chapter 10, I'm gonna look at verse 14. It's the only other place in the Bible where we find the number 666. We find it in Revelation 13, but we also find it in 1 Kings 10, verse 14, where it tells us that the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly were 666 talents of gold. Wow. How many years did he reign? 40. And so the accumulation of his wealth uh, that came to him. This is just one of his resources. And then it says, <clears throat> in, um, besides that, from the traveling merchants and from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, that would have been horses, and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 lard shields of hammered gold 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minus of gold went into each shield. And the king just put him in the house of the force of Lebanon. Just a little showing off, as far as I can tell. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps. And at the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on the side of the place of the seat. And two lions stood beside the armrest. Twelve lions stood there, one on each of the steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. This had to be something unbelievable. Imagine walking up these steps, lions on both sides. Then you have this ivory throne overlaid with pure gold. And to come into that sort of a and environment, um, the Queen of Sheba heard about his words and um, when she came and, and paid Solomon a visit, she tested him and um, uh, he told her everything that she, any question that the Queen of Sheba asked, um, he answered. Sums it up in verse seven of chapter 10. She said, it was true the report that I heard of my own land about your words and your wisdom However, I did not believe the words until I came and I saw it with my own eyes and indeed only half was told to me. Your wisdom, your prosperity, indeed exceeds the fame and wisdom of which I heard. And then she says, how happy your people must be as they see you come in and go out. And when I read that part, that wasn't that his prayer in the first place? Lord, I'm just a child. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to come in and go out. So what does the Lord do? He says, I'll show you how to do it. And he does something so far and above and beyond that it literally, it says it, it, it took her breath away when when uh, she had nothing more to say. And uh, it took the queen's breath away when she saw the, the glory of this kingdom. I personally don't believe that there has ever been uh, worldly empire, kingdom, Kamala, Dubai, any place that was as beautiful and as glorious as this period of time where Solomon reigned and um, prosperity was was given throughout all the land. We're also told here, let's go to, um, um, uh, none of the Israelites were laborers. They were all um, those that were under the conquest of David, the Hittites and um, the Canaanites, they were the ones who did all the work, and the ones who had the oversight positions, they were all Israelis. He had 600 men that were just um, um, overseers. They were, they were the foremen over these chariot cities that he had. Now let's look at his wealth. Um, I need to read down to um, uh, pick it up in verse 26 where he talks about these chariot cities. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed, notice, in chariot cities with the kings in Jerusalem. Now when we go to Israel in November, we'll, be stopping at Megiddo. Megiddo is one of these chariot cities. It's right in the crosshairs uh, that connect Europe to Africa. And it was on the main road. And what Solomon would do is he'd bring in horses from Arabia and he'd have chariots come up from Egypt and he was the middleman. He was the local big-name Car dealer in town, if I would show you something that would be likable to it. And he uh, bought and sold. Uh, he was the middleman. And uh, that's what it means where other prophets and these other cities, he had workforces that would go out and just build chariot cities to do his business. And uh, one of them is Megiddo. I personally have seen the stalls many times and the gates of the city, and it was there for one reason. These were places of business, and um, he was, his wealth was extended because of that. Verse 27, the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kiev. The king's merchants brought them in from Kiva at the current price. Now, a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150, and thus, through their agent, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites. So there it is. He's wheeling and dealing and uh, only um, increasing the amount of wealth that he already has. All right. When the Lord spoke to Samuel about them wanting a king, namely Saul, He says, okay, but this is what's going to happen. They're going to want your sons and your daughters to serve in the army. And he gave instructions concerning what uh, the people were asking for. But I also want to give you a warning. Make sure that when they become king, they don't do two things. Number one, they don't multiply to themselves horses because I don't want them to think that their strength is in chariots or horses. And number two, I don't want them to multiply wives because their wives could actually turn their heart away from loving me first. So those two, two are don't know So let's pick it up in chapter 11, verse one through four. But, here's a sad word. King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, the women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, from all the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them nor with you. For surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods and Solomon clung to these in love. Let me just give you one example, Ahab and Jezebel. When Jezebel became queen, she introduced Baal worship to Israel. It was leaven that leavened out the hearts of the people. They were confused. That led to the big showdown on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal against Elisha. But it was all because of Jezebel. They had turned, because of her, they had turned hearts away from the Lord their God and began to worship the Baals. All right, he had, I can't believe this, 700 wives. 700 wives, come on and princesses, and then 300 concubines, 1,000 women. Now, gang, that's over the top, okay? (laughs) That's just a little over the top. And what does it say? His wives turned away his heart. And so it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And I can't believe what I'm about to read. For Solomon went after the Ashtaros of the god of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not fully follow the Lord as David. And then Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the abominations of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem and the worst of them all, Molach, which is where you offered your children on a burning altar, the abominations of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrifices to God. Now verse nine. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him, What? Twice. The God of the universe comes down. What do you want? I'll give it to you. Face to face. Then another time he comes down, appeared to him twice. And after the point of this, and I could really get sidetracked with it, is um, you know, if you've never seen a vision or you've never heard an audible voice of the Lord, um, be a little bit thankful in some ways. Because my Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. That's why the Lord is making a point of it here. Look, I appeared to you twice, Solomon, and um, remember when you dedicated the temple and I reiterated the covenant with David? If you follow me, no problem. But if you go after other gods, he was clearly warned that if he did this, that the temple would be nothing. That's exactly what happened. But he says, he goes on to say, you know what, I should... Be doing the justice right here now, Solomon. But because of my love for your father, David, I'm gonna let you live out your lifetime in peace. But afterwards, it's all over. And that's exactly what happened. After David, the kingdom was split. Jeroboam took the 10 tribes in the north, and Rehoboam took the two tribes in the south. No longer one kingdom. Why? All because David, uh, Solomon allowed uh, his wives going against the warning of the Lord to go after multiply horses which symbolizes um, his, his wealth and um, he, he had this warning that he didn't listen to uh, so many times I've heard Pastor Chuck say I've heard Billy Graham say the same thing for those who are in ministry or have responsibility three things you don't do number one You don't touch the glory, that leads to pride. You don't touch the women, that led to Solomon's fall. And you don't touch the money, that's what led to Balaam's fall. Those three things are warnings for anybody that's, well, really for any Christian at all. But Solomon wrote the Proverbs, and as he does so, uh, he's doing it primarily for his son, but it's really for all of us, because when you read verse 1, it says Solomon, and he's writing this to his sons or sons. This morning, I'd like to, what I'd like to do on Wednesday is go verse by verse, but then take a topic from it and sort of expound on that. And That's what I want to do this morning. This morning, I want to talk about money and wisdom, because he had so much of it, and uh, also the wisdom that was given to him. Unless uh, I be misunderstood concerning when we talk about money, because we seldom do here, money to me is amoral. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, you can use it for good, or you can use it for evil. you want to say amen to that? So it's really amoral. I, I know some really nice guys that are very, very wealthy, and they're just nice guys. I know some other guys that are very, very wealthy, and they're just jerks, and I just don't know how else to say it. They just are. Their nose is up in the air, and they have this arrogant attitude about them, and it's all about their money. So there's more warnings in the Bible about money, and um, I guess the biggest one is 1 Timothy 6, where it tells us it's the love of money. Not money itself, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I'm I'm always interested in watching lottery winners. They're so happy in the first couple days that I'm going to buy a Cadillac and pay off all my bills. And you read about some of these people a couple years later only to find out their lives had been completely destroyed. And uh, they were, maybe they were some, somewhat content and happy before with nothing. And now, because of the opulence, now they had all sorts of more temptations, all kinds of new friends. <laughs> that lost relative that you never knew you had, he shows up at your door. Well, here's the question. Do you own money? Or does money own you? And you can answer that in the quiet of your own heart. The New Testament has a lot of teaching about money. So let's start by turning to the book of Matthew, chapter 6, in the New Testament, picking it up in verse 19. Jesus, three different times, is going to give parables, parables and stories concerning wealth, money, how to deal with it, and I'd be amiss in giving a Bible study about money without saying look out for the charlatans that are out there. There, there are whole ministries that are set up so that um, if you will just exercise your faith and sow your seed here, God's going to prosper you 100-fold. And my question to these guys is if they really believe that, why aren't they investing their money so that they can get the 100-fold? It's a con, and the average Joe can see through it. But it needs to be said here. They, we call them the prosperity teachers. But here in chapter 6, Jesus gives us instruction in verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and they can steal it. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys Where thieves do not break in and steal. And then this important verse. For wherever your treasure is, there will your your heart be also. I don't care what you tell me, you believe. All I have to do is watch where you spend your money. I can tell a whole lot about a person. Uh, Wherever your heart is, whatever you're investing in, that's where your heart is. The lamp of the body is the eye of If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? And now he draws a line. He says you can't have it both ways. You can't serve two masters. For you're either going to hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. And in case you don't understand what he's talking about, you cannot serve God and money. Here it's called Bammon, but you can't serve both. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Now talk about wisdom. Is not this wisdom? This is real wisdom. He says, And what I like about this, every time we read about Solomon in the New Testament, it's almost derogatory, or sort of a backhanded compliment, if you would. He said, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add one stature to your, your height? What are you worried about this morning? What's keeping you awake at night? Now my question is, by worrying about it, what does it change? Can it change anything at all? Are you going to grow an inch or shrink an inch because you're worried about something? It doesn't change a thing. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil and they don't spin. Notice this. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wow, he had some glory. And his project said he had. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, now the therefore, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Because after these things the Gentiles seek, The Lord is saying right here, here is the difference between a believer and a non-believer. A non-believer is going to pursue money and worldly things, and that's where his heart's at. But he says, he considers a Gentile here the natural man. Uh, But don't let that be you. But you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, if you do that, all these other things shall be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom, and the Lord is saying, I'll take care of all the rest. You don't have to worry about a thing. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry for its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is one of the wisest sentences I've ever read. Sufficient for this day is enough for one day. And yet, how many people are not at peace today because of something that happened 10 years ago? What did Paul say? Forgetting those things that are behind, I press on. If it's some sin, confess it, and uh, it's forgotten. And now we're told here not to take thought for tomorrow. Well, put those two together, and you have what the Bible talks about. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's real freedom when you're not worried about your past and you're not worried about the future. There's a freedom. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right. Let's go to chapter 19, another story that Jesus told about um, this lawyer who was wealthy. He was rich, and he thought he was religious. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And in verse 16, I like this. He says, behold, one came and, and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do so that I can have Eternal life The disciples asked the same question And Jesus told them the only thing that you can do is Believe on me The one who he has sent But it's interesting what, how the Lord draws this guy out he, he wants him to get Have a good look of himself in the mirror So how does the Lord accomplish that Well the first thing he said is, Why do you call me good No one is good But only one and that is God But If you want to enter into life, here's what I'd like you to do. Now, he's just setting this guy up, and he doesn't know it yet. And and he said to him, which one? Um, Jesus said, well, you shall not murder. uh, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie or bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself." And I like this, it's almost hilarious. The young man said, yep, kept all those from my youth. What else do you want me to do? <laughs> he wasn't at the Bible study where the Lord said, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. If you looked at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. And he's hoping the guy will come clean. And, um, and he says, yeah, and I've never told a lie. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> He just was lying right here. I've kept all these from the time I was a young kid. Liar, liar, pants on fire. And the young man said to him, all these I've kept from, what else, what else do you want me to do? All right, now he's getting, he's got the guy right where he wants him. And Jesus said, okay, you've done all of those things great. If you want to be perfect, I want you to go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Uh-oh, He just touched a spot that he can't squirm out of. And when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's actually easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And this blew the disciples' mind. They're thinking, how do you get a camel through the eye of a needle? And they said, this is impossible. Nobody can do it. Actually, it is possible. But you need a really large meat grinder. And then a purifier. And then you get a long straw. It'd take a while. But I suppose it's possible that you could do it if if you did it that way. Well, of course, it's foolishness, and the disciples said, this, this is impossible. Uh, how can anybody enter the kingdom of heaven? And when Jesus heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who can be saved, if, if that's the criteria? And Jesus looked at them and said to them, well, it's impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. There's no way you can make it by keeping the commandments. Somebody want to give me an amen? There's no way you can make it by being good works. Oh, good man, what good work do you want me to do so I can go to heaven? Sorry, nobody's good. Then how can I get to heaven? Only one way. Have God become man, live a perfect life, and then die in your place so you can become perfect and he can take your sin. That is the only way a person can ever get to heaven. It's impossible any other way. There's one more it's in Luke chapter 12. So let's look at. I just picked out three examples this morning. We could go to many. But let's just look at this one in Luke 12. I see this in modern day times as a, the man whose goal in life is to climb the corporate ladder. Does it really matter who he steps on to get where he's going? That would be the modern day equivalent. Chapter 12 of Luke, picking up at verse 13. Um, is that right, 15. Oh, we can go on 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to him, Take heed and beware of, of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And then he spoke a parable, saying, "There was the ground of a certain rich man. He yielded plenty. And he thought within himself, saying, What should I do, since I have no room for all my crops? So I said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns. I'll build greater and bigger ones. And then I'll store up my crops and all my goods, and I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Kick back. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will those things be that you have provided? You worked so hard to have all this to retire, and you don't understand that this very night you're going to die. And how much of that stuff are you going to take with you? Answer, none of it. Uh, and because of these scriptures, my job, according to the scriptures, is actually to give a warning, and I'm quoting, well, let's just turn, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, picking it up in verse 17. Here's a command, not just a suggestion, Paul writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, here's a command. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they will be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. That's what's being said here. That they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what which has been committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and vain babbling and the contradictions of which is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith, grace, and peace be to you. Amen. Solomon, his fall was not his wealth. Matter of fact, everybody in his kingdom was happy clappy. He made Uh, silver like stones in Jerusalem there was peace prosperity over all the land and everybody was happy that was not his downfall his downfall of course was his many wives Solomon would write about wealth when we get to the book of Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes 6 here's his own instruction of his own personal experience with his wealth Ecclesiastes 6, 1 and 2, he says, There's an evil which I have seen under the sun. It's common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself and all of his desires. Yet, God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner comes and consumes it. And so he says, this is vanity, emptiness, and it's an evil affliction. In other words, the money can't make you happy. Or, like John, Paul, George, and Ringo said, they actually got this one right, you can't buy me love. Amen? (laughs) They got that one right. Solomon was given a God-given gift of wisdom. So let's make it applicable to us. We're here to learn, and we want God's wisdom. Do you know that one of the gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12 is the gift of wisdom. I won't have you turn here, I'll just quote it, but this is one of the definitive chapters in the Bible about the gifts that came down on Pentecost, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit decides who's gonna get what. What what gift John's gonna get over here, or what Jerry's gonna get here, or whoever, whatever your gift might be. Chapter 12, it says, the diversity of the gifts come by the Holy Spirit. There are different types of ministries, but it's the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Let me just explain that. Every gift, except for the gift of tongues, was given to you so that you would exercise that gift to build up somebody else's faith. Can I say that again? Every gift that the Holy Spirit has given needs to be exercised except the gift of tongues. That's for self-edification. So that you use that gift to build up somebody else's faith. Somebody want to say amen to that? All right, then we read verse eight. He says, to one is given the word of wisdom. So that is a gift by the Holy Spirit. To another, knowledge through the same spirit. So we have a supernatural gift that's from heaven, different from the wisdom of uh, this world. You see there's worldly wisdom and then there's spiritual wisdom and the Bible talks about that in 1 Corinthians three. Paul says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he will catch these wise guys in their own craftiness. And I can't help but seeing the Pharisees come to Jesus craft with their tricks and trying to be crafty. And they said, Well, let's get them on the tax issue. What do you think about paying taxes, Jesus? He says, Give me a coin. Whose image is on that? Caesar's. He says, Okay, then give to the Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's. After they did that for a couple times, it says they dared ask him no more questions. <laughs> and I like to say, do you really think it's wise to play mind games with the creator of the mind, knowing what he's going to say before uh, before it's even said? So that's what it says. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. 2 Corinthians 1, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in a world is simplicity, godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Paul tells us in Romans one, they profess themselves wise, some of these college professors that try to undermine the faith of your sons and your daughters, they professed themselves wise, but they really became fools. Let me throw a plug in here for our creation conference. Please take advantage of it. Do you know that the war is raging in our school system over uh, what your kids believe as far as a creation account and evolution? And um, here's an opportunity. Just set that day aside and say, we're going to invite somebody, we're going to promote it, I just encourage encourage you to do it. We have some great speakers coming in. Some of these professors are highly educated and they have very little wisdom. They have a lot of knowledge, but they have very little wisdom. In Proverbs, what we're studying, wisdom, what is it? Where does it begin? Well, verse seven. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Some of the smartest people in the world don't know God. Yet it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In other words, what we're doing here this morning appears foolish to the unsaved. But for us, it's making us wise unto salvation. In the early Jesus movement, there was a, a group called Mason Prophet. Uh, um, John and his brother Terry Talbot were the main groups. Their harmonies were off the charts. Well, they both got born again. Both got radically saved. And uh, I, I like John, John's music in particular, but he's writing a song to one of his old unsaying friends who, who esteemed higher education and so on and so forth. And one of his lyrics said, my friend, you're nothing but an educated fool. <laughs> I thought it was great. The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God, the fool. But the, but the wise in heart have received commandments, but a prating fool, he's going to fall. In Acts chapter Four, Peter and John, these are just average guys, fishermen from the Galilee, and they gave it up to follow Jesus and They had healed a man who was sitting in the temple one day, and it got him in a lot of trouble, and um, they wanted to put him in prison uh, and and this was their observation of Peter and John. It says when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now by walking with the Lord, all of a sudden he gives you wisdom that's not of this world. Why did he choose Peter and John? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? Because he's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put the shame to shame the things that are mighty. Why these two fisher guys from from um, uh, from the Galilee? Because when something miraculous like a miracle would happen, they go, "It's certainly not that guy. <laughs> it's got to be God." And so God gets the glory through it all. All right, let's wind this up here this morning. The book of Proverbs is about wisdom. So how can we receive God's wisdom? Paul in writing to Timothy explains it. There's no shortcuts to this. And one of the things you're doing, I hope everybody has their Bible open on their laps this morning because that according to Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy three fifteen, he says, Timothy, you know what? From your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So wisdom for salvation, which comes through faith. Now, let's say we have faith. Peter tells us, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, now add to your faith, virtue, and add to virtue, knowledge. Of all the stuff that's happening in the world today, we happen to be starting the book of Proverbs, a book about wisdom. But let's admit, there's a lot hitting the fan right now in the world we live in, right? And you can look at it through the lens of CNN or Fox News, or you can look at it through the lens of this book. And when you look at it through the lens of this book, we have a completely different perspective. One has an earthly perspective, and we have a biblical perspective. Now, my perspective tells us the hour is late and that the Lord is ready to call his church home. Oh, I don't know the day or the hour, but we're definitely told to know the times and the seasons because we're children of light and children of the day. And the Lord says, you better know the times and you better know the seasons. We're in the seasons of the signs that point to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if we, the church, and you as salt and light, if we don't have the answers these days, where where is our generation gonna get their information from? I watched this program just the other night. Totally captivated me. I'm finding out that every major corporation in the world today is watching young people push their like button or dislike button. Now, I don't quite know what that is because I'm not a Facebook guy. But if you like something, evidently you can click like. I like this. And there are young kids who are becoming millionaires because they're almost like rock stars because they get so many hits on their likes. And corporations are watching. And my point is, you know, they're getting their information and their wisdom from a source that the corporate world looks in on and are actually learning uh, on that. I found it ex- extremely interesting program. Well it tells us here that we are to pass it on. When we add our knowledge the knowledge that we have we're not to keep it but to let it come out. Solomon what the whole book of Proverbs is all about is he's passing on his God given wisdom to his son. And in closing I want to talk to the dads just for a little bit A word to the fathers. It's the job of raising your son and your daughter. Number one, it is not the government's job. Somebody want to give me an amen to that? It is not the government's job. Number two, it is not the school's job. Amen to that? Number three, it is not the church's job or the Sunday school teacher's job to train your kids. Somebody want to give me an amen to that? that might be a little bit harder because some people think it is my job. It is not. And it's not the Sunday school teacher's job either. The job of raising a child, as we're told in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Solomon is writing to his son. It's not Solomon's wife, and I'm not saying that the wives should not be involved with the training process. Of course they should. But who should be taking the lead is dad. It's dad's responsibility to train up your son and your daughter in the ways of the Lord. If you're not doing it, don't make it a guilt trip and beat yourself up for the rest of the day. Just say, you know, Dwight was talking about some stuff this morning I need to pray about and consider considering the times that we're in I need to invest some time in, with my boy or, or with my, my girl and let him know what's, what's really important in life and what really counts and how late it really is. The wisest thing you could ever do in this life is to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior. It is by far and away the wisest thing you could ever do. The most foolish thing that you could ever do is to reject the gospel And believe that perhaps there's some other way to heaven, sort of the mentality of the guy who was building the bigger barns, very successful, had it made in the shade, money in the bank, 401k was doing good, but then all of a sudden he dies, and the Lord said to him, "Thou fool," that's what the Lord called him. He says, "You are a fool because you plan for everything else except for the most important thing, gang. You got a soul." I have a soul. And um, where we invest is all going to come into account. The book of Proverbs is a book about wisdom. I like it that Christmas time when we can put up on the sign, wise men are still seeking them. Amen? We'll stand and close in a word of prayer this morning. We'll stand. Lord, thank you for our introduction to the, the book of Proverbs. We see this man with incredible wealth and wisdom, And, um, Lord, we pray that we learn from his, his failures and his faults, that anything, Lord, not just the many wives that he had, but anything that we can allow your Holy Spirit to look at that would place you in a second place position. Lord, you told us to seek first the kingdom and you'd take care of the rest. Help us simply believe that like little kids this morning because you said so. And again, for the fathers, Lord, I pray that it, it would not seem like a guilt trip placed upon them, but Lord, more of an admonishment and encouragement, realizing that there's forces out there that are trying to undermine everything that we hold near and dear. So I pray for the dads, Lord, I really do. I hold them up to you. And just give them the wisdom and the ability to see through the scriptures what's taking place and not through the wisdom of this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.